Chapter Four of The Mountain Girl. David spends his first day at his cabin, and Frale makes his confession. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Haley Pereira. The Mountain Girl by Payne Erskine. Chapter Four. Dr. Hoyle had built his cabin on one of the pinnacles of the earth, and David, looking down on blue, billowing mountain tops with only the spaces of the air between him and heaven, between him and the ocean, between him and his fair English home, felt that he knew why the old doctor had chosen it. Seated on a splint-bottomed chair in the doorway, pondering, he thought first of his mother, with a little secret sorrow that he could not have taken to his heart the bride she had selected for him, and settled in his own home to the comfortable ease the wife's wealth would have secured for him. It was not that the money had been made in commerce. He was neither a snob nor a cad. Although his own connections entitled him to honor, what more could he expect than to marry wealth and be happy? If— if happiness could come to either of them in that way. No, his heart did not lean toward her. It was better that he should bend to his profession in a strange land. But not this, to live a hermit's life in a cabin on a wild hilltop. How long must it be? How long? Brooding thus, he gazed at the distance of ever-paling blue, and mechanically counted the ranges and peaks below him. An inaccessible tangle of laurel and rhododendron closed the rough and precipitous wall of the mountainside, which fell sheer down until lost in purple shadow, with a mantle of green, deep and rich, varied by the gray of the lichen-covered rocks, the browns and reds of the bare branches of deciduous trees, and the paler tints of feathery pines. Here and there, from damp springy places, dark hemlocks rose out of the mass, tall and majestic, wavering their plumy tops, giant sentinels of the wilderness. Gradually his mood of brooding retrospect changed, and he knew himself to be glad to his heart's core. He could understand why, out of the turmoil of the Middle Ages, men chose to go to sequestered places and become hermits. No tragedies could be in this primeval spot, and here he would rest and build again for the future. He was pleased to sit thus musing, for the climb had taken more strength than he could well spare. His cabin was not yet habitable, for the simple things Dr. Hoyle had accumulated to serve his needs were still locked in well-built cupboards as he had left them. Thring meant soon to go to work, to take out the bed covers and air them, and to find the canvas and nail it over the framework beside the cabin which was to serve as a sleeping apartment. All should be done in time. That was a good framework, strongly built, with a corner post set deep in the ground to keep it firm on this wind-swept height, and with a door in the side of the cabin opening into the canvas room. Ah, yes, all that the old doctor did was well and thoroughly done. His appetite sharpened by the climb and the bracing air, David investigated the contents of one of those melon-shaped baskets which Cassandra had given him when he started for his new home that morning, with little Hoyle as his guide. Ah, oh, what hospitable kindness they had shown to him, a stranger! Here were delicate bits of fried chicken, sweet and white, cornbread, a glass of honey, and a bottle of milk. Nothing better need a man ask. And what animals men are, after all, he thought, taking delight in the mere acts of eating and breathing and sleeping. 
Utterly weary, he would not trouble to open the cot which lay in the cabin, but rolled himself in his blanket on the wide, flat rock at the verge of the mountain. Here, warmed by the sun, he lay with his face toward the blue distance and slept dreamlessly and soundly. Very soundly, for he was not awakened by a crackling of the brush and scrambling of feet struggling up the mountain wall below his hard resting place. Yet the sound kept on, and soon a head appeared above the rock, and two hands were placed upon it. Then a strong, cat-like spring landed the lithe young owner of the head only a few feet away from the sleeper. It was frail, his soft felt hat on the back of his head, and the curl of dark hair falling upon his forehead. For an instant, as he gazed on the sleeping figure, the wild look of fear was in his eyes. Then, as he bethought himself of the words of Aunt Sally, "'Thy is a man thar,' the expression changed to one more malevolent and repulsive, transforming and aging the boyish face. Cautiously he crept nearer and peered into the face of the unconscious Englishman. His hands clinched and his lips tightened, and he made a movement with his foot as if he would spurn him over the cliff. As suddenly the movement passed, he drew back in shame and looked down at his hands, blood-guilty hands as he knew them to be, and, with lowered head, he moved swiftly away. He was a youth again, hungry and sad, stumbling along the untrodden way, avoiding the beaten path, yet unerringly taking his course toward the cleft rock at the head of the fall behind the great holly tree. It was not the food Cassandra had promised him that he wanted now, but to look into the eyes of one who would pity and love him. Heart-sick and weary as he never had been in all his young life, lonely beyond bearing, he hurried along. As he forced a path through the undergrowth, he heard the sound of a mountain stream, and, seeking it, he followed along its rocky bed, leaping from one huge block of stone to another, and swinging himself across by great overhanging sycamore boughs, drawing by its many windings nearer and nearer to the spot where it precipitated itself over the mountain wall. Ever the noise of the water grew louder, until at last, making a slight detour, he came upon the very edge of the descent, where he could look down and see his home nestled in the cove at the foot of the fall, the blue smoke curling upward from its great chimney. He seated himself upon a jutting rock well screened by laurel shrubs on all sides but the one toward the fall. There, his knees clasped about with his arms and his chin resting upon them, he sat and watched. Behind the leafage and tangle of bare stems and twigs, he was so far above and so directly over the spot on which his gaze was fixed as to be out of the usual range of sight from below, thus enabling him to see plainly what was transpiring about the house and sheds, without himself being seen. Long and patiently he waited. Once a dog barked, his own dog, Nig. Someone must be approaching. What if the little creature should seek him out and betray him? He quivered with the thought. The day before he had driven him down the mountain, beating him off whenever he returned. Should the animal persist in tracking him, he would kill him. He peered more eagerly down and saw little Hoyle run out of the cowshed and twist himself this way and that to see up and down the road. Both the child and the dog seemed excited. Yes, there they were, three horsemen coming along the highway. Now they were dismounting and questioning the boy. Now they disappeared in the house. He did not move. Why were they so long within? Hours, it seemed to frail, but in reality it was only a short search they were making there. 
They were longer looking about the sheds and yard. Hoyle accompanied them everywhere, his hands in his pockets, standing about, shivering with excitement. All around they went, peering and searching, thrusting their arms as far as they could reach into the stacks of fodder, looking into troughs and corn sacks, setting the fowls to cackling wildly, even hauling out the long corn stalks from the wagon which had served to make Thring's ride the night before comfortable. No spot was overlooked. Frequently they stood and parlayed. Then Frail's heart would sink within him. What if they should set Nig to track him? Ah, oh, he would strangle the beast and pitch him over the fall. He would spring over after him before he would let himself be taken and hanged. Oh, he could feel the strangling rope around his neck already. He could not bear it. He could not. Thus cowering, he waited, starting at every sound from below as if to run, then sinking back in fear, breathless with the pounding of his heart in his breast. Now the voices came up to him painfully clear. They were talking to little Hoyle angrily. What they were saying he could not make out, but he again cautiously lifted his head and looked below. Suddenly the child drew back and lifted his arm as if to ward off a blow. But the blow came. Frail saw one of the men turn as he mounted his horse to ride away and cut the boy cruelly across his face and arm with his rawhide whip. The little one's shriek of fright and pain pierced his big brother to the heart and caused him to forget for the moment his own abject fear. He made as if he would leap the intervening space to punish the brute, but a cry of anger died in his throat as he realized his situation. The selfishness of his fear, however, was dispelled, and he no longer cringed as before, but had the courage again to watch, awake and alert to all that passed beneath him. Hoyle's cry brought Cassandra out of the house flying. She walked up to the man like an angry tigress. Frail rose to his knees and strained eagerly forward. If you are such a coward, you must hit something small and weak. You can strike a woman. Hit me, she panted, putting the child behind her. Muttering, the man rode sullenly away. He no business hanging round Weans, listening to all we say. Frail could not make out the words, but his face burned red with rage. Had he been in hiding down below, he would have wreaked vengeance on the man. As it was, he stood up and boldly watched them ride away in the opposite direction from which they had come. He sank back and waited, and again the hours passed. All was still but the rushing water and the gentle soughing of the wind in the tops of the towering pines. At last he heard a rustling and sniffing here and there. His heart stood still, then pounded again in terror. They had, they had set Nig to track him. Of course the dog would seek for his old friend and comrade, and they, they would wait until they heard his bark of joy, and then they would seize him. He crept close to the rock where the water rushed, not a foot away, and clinging to the tough laurel behind him, leaned far over. To drop down there would mean instant death on the rocks below. It would be terrible, almost as horrible as the strangling rope. He would wait until they were on him, and then, nearer and nearer came the erratic trotting and scratching of the dog among leaves, and then, if only he could grapple with the man who had struck his little brother, he would drag him over with him. A look of fierce joy leaped in his eyes, which were drawn to a narrow blue gleam as he waited. 
Suddenly, Nig burst through the undergrowth and sprang to his side, but before the dog could give his first bark of delight, the yelp was crushed in his throat, and he was hurled with the mighty force of frenzy, a black, writhing streak of animate nature into the rushing water, and there swept down, tossed on the rocks, taken up and swirled about and thrown again upon the rocks, no longer animate, but a part of nature's own, to return to his primal elements. It was done and Frail looked at his hands helplessly, feeling himself a second time a murderer. Yet he was in no way more to blame for the first than for this. As yet a boy untaught by life, he had not learned what to do with the forces within him. They rose up madly and mastered him. With a man's power to love and hate, a man's instincts, his untamed nature ready to assert itself for tenderness or cruelty without a man's knowledge of the necessity for self-control, where some of his kind would have been inert and listless, his inheritance had made him intense and fierce. Loving and gentle and kind, he could be, yet when stirred by liquor or anger or fear, most terrible. His deed had been accomplished with such savage deafness that none pursuing could have guessed the tragedy. They might have waited long in the open spaces for the dog's return or the sound of his joyous yelp of recognition, but the sacrifice was needless. The affectionate creature had been searching on his own behalf, careless of the blows with which his master had driven him from his side the day before. Trembling, Frail crouched again. The silence was filled with pain for him. The moments swept on, even as the water rushed on, and the sun began to drop behind the hills leaving the hollows in deepening purple gloom. At last, deeming that the search for the time must have been given up, he crept cautiously toward the great holly tree, not for food, but for hope. There, back in the shadow, he sat on a huge log, his head bowed between his hands, and listened. Presently the silence was broken by a gentle stirring of the fallen leaves, not erratically this time, only a steady moving forward of human feet, Again Frail's heart bounded and the red sought his cheeks, but now with a new emotion. He knew of but one footstep which would advance toward his ambush in that way. Peering out from among the deepest shadows, he watched the spot where Cassandra had promised food should be placed for him, his eyes no longer a narrow slit of blue, but wide and glad, his face transformed from the strain of fear with eager joy. Soon she emerged, walking wearily. She carried a bundle of food tied in a cloth, and an old overcoat of rough material trailed over one arm. These she deposited on the flat stone, then stood a moment leaning against the smooth gray bowl of the holly tree, breathing quickly from the exertion of the steep climb. Her eyes followed the undulating line of the mountain above them, rising tree-fringed against the sky, to where the highest peak cut across the setting sun, haloed by its long rays of gold. No cloud was there, but sweeping down the mountainside were the earth mists, glowing with iridescent tints, draping the crags and floating over the purple hollows, the verdure of the pines showing through it all, gilded and glorified. Cassandra waiting there might have been the dryad of the tree come out to worship in the evening light and grow beautiful. So Thring would have thought, could he have seen her with the glow on her face, and in her eyes, and lighting up the fires in her hair. But no such classic dream came to the youth lingering among the shadows, ashamed to appear before her, bestowing on her a dumb adoration, unformed and wordless. 
because his friend had maudlinly boasted that he was the better man in her eyes and could any day win her for himself, he had killed him. Despite all the anguish the deed had wrought in his soul, he felt unrepentant now as his eyes rested on her. He would do it again, and yet it was that very boast that had first awakened in his heart such thought of her. For years Cassandra had been as his sister, although no tie of blood existed between them. But suddenly the idea of possession had sprung to life in him when another had assumed the right as his. Frale had not looked on her since that moment of revelation, of which she was so ignorant and so innocent. Now, filled with the shame of his deed and his desires, he stood in a torment of longing, not daring to move. His knees shook and his arms ached at his sides, and his eyes filled with hot tears. Quickly the sun dropped below the edge of the mountain. Cassandra drew a long sigh, and the glow left her face. She looked an instant lingeringly at the articles she had brought, and turned sadly away. Then he took a step toward her with hands outstretched, forgetful of his shame and all, except that she was slipping away from him. Arrested by the sound of his feet among the leaves, she spoke. Frail, are you there? Her voice was low, as if she feared other ears than his might hear. He did not move again, and speak he could not, for remembrance rushed back stiflingly and overwhelmed him. Descrying his white face in the shadow, a pity as deep as his shame filled her heart and drew her nearer. Why, Frail, come out here. No one can see you, only me. Still tongue-tied by his emotion, he came into the light and stood near her. In dismay, she looked up in his face. The big boy brother, who had taken her to the little Karoo crossing station only two months before, rough and prankish as the colt he drove, but gentle withal, was gone. He who stood at her side was older. Anger had left its mark about his mouth, and fear had put a strange wildness in his eyes, but there was something else in his reckless, set lips that hurt her. She shrank from him, and he took a step closer. Then she placed a soothing hand on his arm and perceived he was quivering. She thought she understood, and the soft pity moistened her eyes and deepened in her heart. Don't be afraid, Frail. They're gone long ago and won't come back. Not for a while, I reckon. He smiled faintly, never taking his eyes from her face. I ain't feared of them. I have been, but... He shook her hand from his arm and made as if he would push her away. Then suddenly he leaned toward her and caught her in his arms, clasping her so closely that she could feel his wildly beating heart. Frail! Frail, don't frail! You never used to do me this way! No, I never done you this way. I wished I had. I've been a big fool. He kissed her the first kisses of his young manhood, on brow and cheeks and lips, in spite of her useless writhings. He continued muttering as he held her. I sinned for you. I killed a man. He said he'd have you. He allowed he'd go down yonder to the school where you were at and marry you and fetch you back. I were a fool to allow you to go there for him to follow her and get you. I killed him. He's dead. Oh, frail, she moaned. If you had only told me, I could have given you my promise, and you would have known he was lying and spared him and saved your own soul. He little knew the strength of his arms as he held her. Frail, I'm like to perish, you're hurting me so. 
He loosed her, and she sank, a weary, frightened heap at his feet. Then very tenderly he gathered her in his arms and carried her to the great flat rock and placed her on the old coat she had brought him. "'You know I wouldn't hurt you for the whole world, Cass.' He knelt beside her, and throwing his arms across her lap buried his face in her dress, still trembling with his unmastered emotion. She thought him sobbing. "'Can you give me your promise now, Cass?' "'Now? Now, Frail, your hands are blood-guilty.' she said, slow and hopelessly. He grew cold and still, waiting in the silence. His hands clutched her clothing, but he did not lift his head. He had shed blood and had lost her. They might take him and hang him. At last he told her so, brokenly, and she knew not what to do. Gently she placed her hand on his head and drew the thick silken hair through her fingers, and the touch to his stricken soul was a benediction. The pity of her cooled the fever in his blood and swept over his spirit the breath of healing. For the first time, after the sin and the horror of it, after the passion and its anguish, came tears. He wept and wiped his tears with her dress. Then she told him how her mother had been hurt, how Hoyle had driven the half-broken colt and the mule all the way to Carew's alone to bring her home, and how he had come nigh being killed how a gentleman had helped her when the colt tried to run and the mule was mean, and how she had brought him home with her. Then he lifted his head and looked at her, his haggard face drawn with suffering, and the calmness of her eyes still further soothed and comforted him. They were filled with big tears, and he knew the tears were for him, for the change which had come upon him, lonely and wretched, doomed to hide out on the mountain, his clothes torn by the brambles and soiled by the red clay of the holes into which he had crawled to hide himself. He rose and sat at her side, and held her head on his shoulder with gentle hand. "'Poor little sister! Poor little Cass! I've been awful mean and bad,' he murmured. "'It's a badness I can't count for no ways. When I seed that there doctor man, I reckon it were him I seed lying asleep up yonder and hanging rock. A big, tall man, right thin and white in the face.' He paused and swallowed as if loath to continue. "'Frail!' she cried, and would have drawn away, but that he held her. "'I didn't hurt him, Cass. I might have. I left him lie there, never woke him nor touched him, but I felt hit here. The badness!' He struck his chest with his fist. "'I left there fast and come here. Ever since I killed Ferd, it's been following me that away. I reckon I'm cursed to hellfire for it now. If they take me, or if they don't, it's all one. It's thar where I'm going at the last. Frail, there is a way. Yes, there is one way, only one. If you'll give me your promise, Cass, I'll get away down these mountains and I'll work. I'll work hard and get you a house like one I see to the settlement. Cass, I will. It's you, Cass. Ever since Ferd said that word, I've been plumb out of my head. Last night I slept in Wildcat Hole, and I were that hungered and lone. I tried to pray like your ma done teach me, and I couldn't think of nothing to say. Only just, oh, Lord, Cass, that away, only your name, Cass, Cass, all night long. I reckon Satan put my name in your heart, Frail. Pears to me like it is sin. No, nah, Satan never put your name there. He don't meddle with such as you. He were trying to get your name out in my heart. That's what he were trying, for he knowed I'd go bad right quick if he could. It were your name kept my hands off in that doctor man, thar on the rock. Give me your promise now, Cass. It'll save me.
Then why didn't it save you from killing Ferd? she asked. Oh, God, he moaned, and was silent. Listen, Frail, she said at last. Can't you see it's sin for you and me to sit here like this? Like we dared to be sweethearts when you have shed blood for this? Take your hands off me, and let me go down to Mother. Slowly his hold relaxed and his head drooped, but he did not move his arms. She pushed them gently from her and stood a moment looking down at him. His arms drooped upon the stone at his side, listless and empty, and again her pitying soul reached out to him and enveloped him. Frail, there is only one way that I can give you my promise, she said. He held out his arms to her. No, I can't sit that way. You can see that. The good book says, Ye must repent and be born again. He groaned and covered his face with his hands. Then you would be a new man, without sin. I reckon you have suffered a heap, and repented a heap, since you did that, Frail. I'm feared. I'm feared if you were here and riled me again like you done that time. I'm feared I'd do it again, like you were talking about to you, Cass. He rose and stood close to her. The soft dusk was wrapping them about, and she began to fear lest she lose her control over him. She took up the bundle of food and placed it in his hand. Here, take this and the coat too, Frail. Come down and have supper with Mother and me tonight, and sleep in your own bed. They won't search here for one while, I reckon, and you'll be safer than hiding in Wildcat Hole. Hoyle heard them say they reckon you'd lit off down the mountain and were hiding in some nearby town. They'll hunt you there first. Come. She walked on, and he obediently followed. When we get nigh the house, I'll go first and see if the way is clear. You wait back. If I want you to run, I'll call twice, quick and sharp, but if I want you to come right in, I'll call once, low and long. After that, no word was spoken. They clambered down the steep, winding path, and not far from the house she left him. She wondered Nig did not bound out to greet her, but supposed he must be curled up near the hearth in comfort. Frail also thought of the dog as he sat cowering under the laurel shrubs, and set his teeth in anguish and sorrow. Cass'll hate it when she finds out, he muttered. After a moment, waiting and listening, he heard her long, low call float out to him. Falling on his hurt spirit, it sounded heavenly sweet. End of chapter 4